what is happening right now in our country is against our values as a nation. Our nation of immigrants, our nation of people who have come here, who have built this country. This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. Alejandra Sankian has led a life of service both inside and outside of government. She served as a public school teacher, an activist, and ran the mayor of Boston's Office of Immigrant Advancement. She's now trying to serve in a new way and is a candidate for one of Boston City Councilors at large positions. Alejandra Sankian, welcome to Campus on the Common. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, there's a rumor that you're running for a political office a rumor. in Boston. <laughs> yes, the rumor is true. Uh, yes, I am running to be one of your next Boston City Councilors at large. Now, for those that aren't familiar with the system, mm -hmm. what does a Boston City Councilor at large do? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the City Council has 13 members, nine are in district, and four are at large. And the main... Um, areas for city council is to have oversight over the city budget so how city services are spent including the budget to introduce ordinances that protect our our residents like the trust act and also to have oversight on the departments and and how they're functioning and so you have uh, city councilors often call hearings to bring light to to issues a lot of your district councilors are very focused also on constituent services and and the at-large councilors support that as well we are in what's called a relatively weak council system so in New York, for example, the city council will introduce their own items in the budget. They'll introduce their own budget. We're a little bit different here in Boston in that a lot of the power is centered in the office of the mayor. Makes it even that much more important who your city councilor is because you have to be really innovative and creative in terms of how you're going to leverage uh, your voice to really influence in the city of Boston. And you've seen people do, I mean, you've seen it, some councilors doing it statewide. Michelle Wu with the T is a perfect example of that. But locally as well, you have councilors that are, are really on the forefront of the issues impacting our communities, issues of public safety, issues of education, and issues of diversity. And so the, the city council has been, a front been on the front line of all those issues. In terms of an institutional format, does this mean that the city of Boston, having these councilors at large, this mm -hmm. council itself, that are able to essentially understand what the needs of the people are? With the at-large, what is important is you're looking at the needs of the city across the city. So when in district, you're very much focused on your district, although the districts are quite diverse as well. So it's not as if there are issues that are monolithic across this in within a district either. You have districts that are very, very diverse in terms of what their income levels are, race and so forth. But really looking across the city and what are the issues as a whole? What are some of the ways that Boston can take leadership on them? So for example, development is something that's a huge issue that's impacting all districts, I would say, but also, but looking at where, where do we see development impacting next? And you're in, you know, looking at sort of the southern part of the city. And so, yeah, I think as a city, I think that's right, as a city councilor at large, you have, you have more of a, a comprehensive view of everything that's happening in the city. In terms of how the city runs itself, you've got you, the mayor sitting on top, sort of the executive yep, branch. Sure. 
is the city council more like a legislative branch to some degree? So, and that's what makes it a little bit complicated. So in other cities, it works more along that works more like that the constraints within Boston there are a couple one that a lot of legislation that you'd want to enact actually has to be approved at the state level through home rule petitions so a lot of these ordinance a lot of these ordinances on development for example on on change on affordable housing Lydia Edwards right now has had his introduced an ordinance that would tax luxury sales, real estate sales, at 6%. Now, is she a state rep or a senator? She is a, she is a city councilor. From, she represents East Boston, Charlestown, and North End. So her district is very much impacted by uh, development and gentrification. And so, but in order for us, for that to pass, we the city council has to bring that to the state and the state has to approve a home rule petition for the city to enact that. Now, our state partners like Mike Connolly from Cambridge have introduced legislation that would give cities back local control on things like real estate taxes, and that would be extremely helpful in having the city council being able to really push forward some of that legislation without without state approval. The other thing is the budget, how the city spends its money, how the city brings in its money, how the you know the city is making sure that everyone's paying their dues, like including institutions of higher learning as well as healthcare institutions, hospitals who don't pay taxes on, they don't pay taxes on their land because they are technically nonprofits, right? It's important that the city has oversight in making sure that the money is is coming in. Now the budget itself, city councilors only have an up or down vote on the budget, which is limiting because in other cities you would be able to have line item vetoes. Uh, You also able to introduce budget items it's more of a of a negotiation which puts a lot of power in the office of the mayor however i will say you know the city council even with those limitations can be a very powerful body if the people on the council are are willing to take risks um which they are which you which we have seen increasingly and over the last five, ten years, and with the election of more of more women on the council has been, and more progressives on the council has been, really impacted the way that the council works and the way that the council functions. And also, think for the people of Boston, looking at the council as a place that they can turn to for their advocacy as well. Um, and that and that is in, increasingly important because it's really how are the voices of the people being heard in the decision-making uh, platforms of the city. And the city council has a huge role to play that along with the with the mayor's office. Uh, and so, you know, the city council, it's, it's a hugely, it's a hugely important body in order of, in order to really think about the city that we want to be for years to come. For most municipalities, the school budget is a considerable line item. It, yep. I imagine yep. city of Boston yep. is the same. Yep. Does the city council have any oversight in terms of the school committee budget? It's kind of similar to the the overall budget. There were in in voting for the budget last week, there were three councilors that voted against the Boston public school budget, feeling like it didn't adequately f- meet the needs of 
of the students or, or, or the schools themselves. You would have to have a critical mass, I think, in order to vote down the budget. And that makes it more limiting as well, right? Because you want you're also, you know, a fiscal steward of the city, so you want the city to function and you want to pass you want to pass budgets. You don't you wouldn't want the situation like in Washington where there where you can have, you know, budget freeze or shut down. Um, that's just not something that's that that's anyone would want in the city of Boston. And so the way that counselors have really been able to leverage their voices and their concerns and their input into the budget is through the budget hearings. Once the budget is introduced, having budget hearings and introducing what they would like to see. So for example, Anissa Sabi George, the original Boston Public School budget did not include a nurse in every school, which she thought it should, and so through her advocacy and through her hearings, she's been able. They the new budget does include a nurse in every school, so there are ways to do that. It's not the traditional. Let me veto this or let me introduce my own line item. It has. It's much more of a negotiation and much more of sort of bringing light to the issue. So there is a relationship between the Boston City Council and the Boston School Committee in that regard, in terms of negotiating the evolution or the development of different resources, much yeah. like this nurse? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much the school committee... So the school committee is an interesting... It, that you bring it up is an interesting body because the school committee is actually appointed by the mayor, which is also different than than other cities as well. It's more the superintendent and the mayor's office that is creating the BPS budget and not so much the school committee, which is why there has been there have been recent calls for an elected school committee or a hybrid school committee or school committee that whose appointments come not just from the mayor's office but also from the city council and from the students and families and I think part of that is because it's not seen as an independent body per se I think what you see is families and parent activists really wanting to really wanting the school committee to, to have a level of independence so that they're more accountable directly to the people of the city of Boston. So if I understand what we're saying here mm-hmm. is that the mayor's office and the superintendent is, is essentially making up all the policy that's enacted throughout the Boston public school system. I think that's fair to say. According to statistics, 70% of the population within Boston public schools are black and Latinos, mm-hmm. yet only 40% of those make up mm-hmm. the ranks within the exam schools. Mm-hmm. Why is that, and who's responsible for that, and what's being done about that <laughs> inequality, as it yeah, would seem? That is definitely a complicated issue, one that's very near and dear to my heart. I'm a proud graduate of Boston Latin School and had an amazing education there that set me on a great path forward in college and beyond. And I want anyone who would want that type of education to be able to have access to it. The way that Boston, the admissions used to work is that there was a diversity requirement. You had to consider that in, in, your, in the admissions policy. In 98, that was changed through a court, uh, court decision that said that that was unconstitutional and so race could not play, play a factor. And so since then, we've seen the numbers of blacks and Latinos uh, plummet significantly at the school. And so right now, so Boston Latin School the Boston, the exam schools, the three exam schools, Boston Latin, Boston Latin Academy, and O'Brien, it's 40% of black and Latino students. At Boston Latin School, which is frequently ranked number one in the state, it's 20% black and Latino students. And so, you know, there are a lot of, I think there are a, a number of 
contributing factors. One is the test that is used. So the admissions test into Boston Latin School is the what's called the ISEE, which is the independent school exam, uh, and that's used for admissions into private schools. We don't prepare students for the ISEE, so those that are taking it oftentimes are in, in families who uh, have the resources to be able to pay for extra tutoring or are connected enough to know what the different programs are that exist that, that would help their students. So if I understand this scenario correctly, we have a test that's applied to a majority-minority population mm -hmm. that's essentially created by those that are not part of the majority minority. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yes. And, and also aimed at folks that would have the resources for tutors for the extra schooling required to take a test that would enable you to get into a, a prep school type mm -hmm. environment. Exactly. Exactly. And so there was a recent report released uh, by the Rappaport Institute at Harvard that showed that if we use the MCAS as opposed to the ISEE, that alone you would see an increase in the number of students of color that were admitted into the exam schools. And so all the BPS students already take the MCAS and the curriculum is very much uh, designed with the MCAS in mind. That would be a better measure, I believe. And then giving the opportunity for students who are current, who are Boston residents, but currently in either private or parochial schools the opportunity for them to take the MCAS as well. Because um, that's a concern too, is that if, if the, and one of the reasons that the ISE is used is because the requirement is that you're in a Boston, that you're a Boston resident, not that you're in a Boston public school, which I think is, which I think is fine. Um, I think just using the MCAS, giving them the opportunity to take the MCAS to, if, if should they choose to, is, is something that, would be much far, far, far more equitable than the system that currently exists. You stated the problem and the solution really well. Is there any movement towards adjusting the application process towards these exam schools? So it's something that the that the school department has always um, has shied away from because it is such a, a complicated issue. It's seen as a politically difficult move to make there hasn't been the will so much to be to to change it that has changed in recent years and there's a hearing called by Councillor Campbell and Councillor Janey uh, those are both district city councillors one is the Dorchester Mattapan and the other is uh, Roxbury South End they called a hearing to 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 ask the school department what are some of the measures they can take to make it more equitable and and also brought in advocates as well as education experts on what they what they recommended and so it's more of a political issue uh, I yeah I think the information is clear the the studies are you know have been conclusive that a way there a way to make it more inclusive would be to use the MCAS it's just having the political will to do that um, knowing that uh, a, there will be a you know a block of voters who would feel as if they were losing something by a change in the system help me understand because what I thought was the system is the the people that are in Boston public school system are appointed so they don't have to worry about voters mm -hmm. at the same time the mayor and the city council they do have to worry about mm -hmm. voters mm 
-hmm. So is this a mayoral issue, an issue for the mayor's office, or is this an issue for the city council office? Or essentially, where does the rubber meet the road in terms of making positive change? And and I guess a follow-up to this question would be, is cultural competency part of the equation that we need to look at in Mm -hmm. terms of solving this inequality? There has to be mayoral support for there to be a shift, for there to be a change in a city like Boston, it is important, it is necessary to have that, um, to have that support. It, the city council, what they can do is put pressure in order to do that and to make sure that that, that changes. In terms of introducing an ordinance that changes the admission criteria, I'm not exactly sure if that's something that the city council is able to do. It's possible that it has to be a policy that comes out of the Boston public schools. I'm either through convincing or through pressure, that's really where it needs to be generated. I think with the new superintendent, Dr. Castellius, and I think that many people have been very vocal about their desire to see that policy reviewed. So I'm hope I have hopes that she will she will do that as one of her first as one of her first uh, matters. When we consider education mm-hmm. and the fact that one of Boston's biggest exports is college students, mm-hmm. what are Boston area universities and colleges doing to support Boston public school mm-hmm. systems? Different universities have different programs, scholarships, uh, supports within the schools. The college students themselves certainly play a big role in terms of volunteering and support services for the students. You know, where I think that there's a real gap is in our technical and vocational in education. So we have Madison Tech, which is a is our voc ed school that really needs a complete turnaround. And in a city like Boston, I mean, we are the cent- epicenter of healthcare, of technology, of, you know, it's it seems unreasonable to me that we wouldn't have a top rated voc ed school with all the resources that we have and all the universities that we have. Uh, Worcester Polytech is a great example. It's a national model of a school that is doing an amazing, amazing work uh, with their with their students. As we look at the job markets coming down the line, middle skill jobs, which are those jobs that you need training but not necessarily secondary education, uh, there's a wide market for them in both the healthcare and in um, technology industries. And so I think that there's a huge opportunity that's being missed at by the universities not having a stronger relationship, stronger partnership, and stronger investment in our, in our Madison and Madison Tech, because we have we have the intellectual capital here, we have the social capital. That is not that is not an issue. The issue is how how is that investment being made, uh, and what's a, a better way to be more uh, I don't know deliberate or or really make much more aggressive contributions to to making sure that 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 high school becomes a a national model for a voc tech school because if there's any city that should have that i would think that boston would be one of them and so that's how i see universities um, being able to really really have a significant impact and this is not to downplay the work that they're already doing within the community within different communities or the you know some of the scholarships that they give but I think there could be a lot there's a lot more that we can do now is this a communication issue I'm wondering do the local universities and colleges know about the need for Votech training 
I can't imagine that they don't. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's a great question. I guess the actually. question is, is, is it even yeah. on your radar? <laughs> that's a great question. Actually, that's a great question. I I would think that it's on their radar. I mean, I you know, in depending on where they are, I mean, that that school in itself is right in in Northeastern territory, so I can't imagine that Northeastern doesn't have a... That's a hint for you folks, don't worry about Northeastern. <laughs> um, that doesn't have that, that connection, because I know they do a lot of programming in the community, so I, I can't imagine that they don't. But, but it could, you know, I think it's a good question that sometimes the answers have to start with just an education of the problem, right? And so... Uh, that's you know bringing in universities, bringing in the schools together uh, to have that conversation. I think is hugely important. You know there has been attempts in the past to to elevate the there's a current relationship between or a current program connection between Madison Park and Roxbury Community College, but that I don't know that that has yielded the results that that are that were desired as when the program was created. You know, I'd like to dive into more of understanding the problem. Mm-hmm. One of the questions I have is when you look at the the instructors in Boston Public School System versus mm-hmm. the people they're teaching, mm-hmm. I've heard that there's a disconnect. Mm-hmm. The question about cultural competency comes up and yeah. really understanding the problem. I know in some Boston Public School Systems that they actually have competency trainers that will go yeah. out and say okay well you're not from this community right let me teach you about this community right. let, let me teach you how to communicate with this particular constituency right. but I've also heard that's not that's not mandated throughout the system is that accurate and more importantly what is being done in terms of cultural competency and helping those who are from outside the system or mm-hmm. maybe not familiar with the system to really understand what the problems are yeah so just on the first point in terms of diversity in, in teaching staff, it is you know it is an issue that's shared across uh, across the country in terms of teaching staff not mirroring the population of uh, the districts. Uh, oftentimes, in teachers in education schools, you you see that you see that dis, you know that sort of disparity, and then that of course translates to the number of teachers who are people of color and I know that there in Boston there is a uh, significant effort to bring more diverse teachers to to the Boston public schools and a very aggressive uh, recruitment plan to do that and so I think that in terms of you ask you know is BPS aware they are absolutely aware and they have and they have been attempting to to remedy that. This is not an issue where the problem is unknown or the problem isn't being addressed. Uh, In terms of cultural competency across the schools, I'm just trying to think of where within BPS that would be mandated, right? So I think, you know, you think of the BPS, Boston Public School departments, and perhaps the maybe the Department of Diversity and Equity, um, and one of the people that leads that office is very, very well-versed in in trainings, in cultural competency training, in trainings, and trainings of white privilege. And so whether those are happening across the board, I actually do not know. Whether they should be, then I, I would say absolutely, I would say absolutely yes. Um, you know, I think as a s- teaching staff, the Boston public school teachers are, are deeply committed to their students and but there is definitely a need for what you're what you're saying in, in terms of the cultural competency trainings uh, to be able to to 
understand the the lives and realities of the students that they're serving. I'm a white guy, mm-hmm. so I've been I've grown up in an element of privilege that hasn't been extended to all Americans. Mm-hmm. In the process of learning more about that whole dynamic, one thing that's been brought to my attention is the school-to-prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. What is that, and could you explain how that works, and sure. is it present in Boston? Sure. There are a number of factors that lead to the school-to-prison pipeline, not least of which is the overcriminalization of our young men of color. So early interaction with the criminal justice system sets up young men of color to have future interactions with the criminal justice system. And so if students are being frisked more frequently, if they're being stopped more frequently, I mean, there's just there's just a greater chance there because kids are kids and they make mistakes. There's a greater chance of there that that is, turns into a criminal arrest or a criminal activity that, is, that, that goes on their record that impacts them for down the line. The other element of the school-to-prison pipeline is just the, the idea that schools that are not educating our students to the best of their abilities are not giving them the options that they need to make other choices once they come out of the school. And so uh, that is a key element, along with the criminalization of young men of color, that's a key element is what are the options that we are giving our students in terms of how we are preparing them, whether it be for training or post-secondary education. If they don't have those options, you are limited into what you can do after high school or even if you make it out of high school. So in addition, the over-disciplining of our, of our students, so students who are expelled, then also limiting their options as to what they, what they can do. You boil it down to you know, being able to meet the needs of the students and meeting them where they are so that they're reaching their full potential, understanding the impact of criminalization of young men of color at an early age and how that impacts their future uh, success um, and then also what are the what are the disciplinary measures that are being used across the schools and how are they leading to uh, school dropouts um, or just disaffected youth when we talk about resources I'm wondering how does the promise act contend with the concept of resource and equal mm-hmm. distribution of that mm-hmm. so the promise act is um, currently being debated on Beacon Hill and in 1993, we had the budget that, that we are currently using in the state is the, is the funding formula that we're using is the one that was developed in 1993. So it was a, it, it was a while ago. A couple years ago, there was a foundation budget review board, FBRB, foundation budget review board who looked at that formula and to see how it was working or not working and what was the it made recommendations is how it could be changed so that schools were more equitably funded across uh, across the state and also recommendations of how to measure measure the impact of that funding and so uh, the promise act takes those recommendations and puts them in a bill and says there are certain areas that we're underfunding so we are underestimating the the percentage of special needs students in the district and so that needs to be we need proper funding for that we are underestimating the number of english language learners in a district and we're also a big one underestimating our healthcare costs. If money is going to healthcare as opposed to, uh, you know, opposed to student learning, then that, you know, shifting that that budget formula is important in making sure that districts get their fair share. Another is the question of the charter schools, and so charter schools they're funded by the state, and so 
as state funding goes to a district, like let's say, for example, state funding goes to Boston, right? They get a certain percent, they get a certain amount, and then that funding has to go to the charter schools first because that's their only source, right? And so then what's left over goes to the Boston Public Schools, which makes it very difficult. That on top of the fact that in the current budget formula, we are seen as a much wealthier district than we are because of our property taxes. But at the end of the day, the majority of the students who are in our schools are the most vulnerable and the ones who need the, who need, need the most resources. And so you sort of have set up this perfect storm where there's just a very limited amount of resources that's actually going to the Boston Public Schools from the state. And so then Boston is, has to put in a, a bigger percentage of that. Uh, this formula would help alleviate that somewhat. I still think there needs to be more investment at the local level, but I think the foundation, changing the foundation budget is a key way of right setting the, the actual costs and also of, of figuring out how t- the reimbursement for, for charter school students who are, who are leaving the district schools. Charter schools are a very divisive issue on both sides are, you know, very torn about charter or pro-charter. I think a big part of that is the issue of the funding and how charter schools have impacted the funding, the district funding negatively. Because if you have, because the funding follows the students, right? So if you have 25 students in a classroom and then f- and then five of them go to a charter, you still have the same resources you needed for 25 students. But now you 20, have less budget. But now you have less budget. There's a lot of complications, but the, the Promise Act tries to approach that. There's There are a couple different bills on Beacon Hill right now that are looking at the funding formula. I'm hopeful that the Promise Act or some version of the Promise Act is able to pass and we're able to more equitably fund our schools. I'd like to switch topics a little bit and talk about one of the issues that's super divisive right now in this country, and that's immigration. Mm-hmm. How does Boston stack up in terms of how it deals with new immigrants to this country? So I was spent the last four and a half years as the director for immigrant advancement, and during that time we elected Trump and has really shifted the dynamic and the rhetoric and the narrative of immigration even more divisively than it, than it was before. And, and that's not to say deportations didn't happen before because they did significantly under Obama and under Bush. There's a new level of vitriol and hatred that's coming out of the federal administration that definitely has an impact on lo- locally, right? For Boston, I, you know, I believe that we are in a in a in a fairly good place in terms of where it comes to our immigrant. We definitely, you know, we are a sanctuary city. We welcome our immigrant populations. We're very clear about that, regardless of status, you have access to city services. So I think there are a lot of things that, you know, in comparison to other cities, we we definitely have been doing a good job. I was happy to see that recently. Councilor Zakem and Mayor Walsh have introduced a strengthened trust act uh, because they're. Now, under this new administration, there is a lot more cooperation between the boss, between the police and ICE, and that has led to to actions that have that would not constitute us as a sanctuary city. For example, having a worker who was injured, having his employer report him to a Boston police who reported him to ICE, as opposed to paying him his you know what he needed his, his workers' work compensation. compensation, and that is an issue because. 
regardless of status, you have certain rights as a worker. And one of them is, is if you get injured, you get workers' compensation. And so using our immigration system as a deterrent, as a deterrent for workers to exercise their rights as workers is not something that we want to do in the city. And so, so I was happy to see that that was strengthened. I think there has to be very strong oversight. Chicago, Trump recently tweeted that he was going to start these nationwide raids and roundups of, of immigrants. Easiest immigrants to find are those that are actually doing what they're supposed to do and are, you know, they're working, they're living their lives. They're not trying to escape uh police they're not involved in criminal activity but it's easier to find where they work it's easier to find where they live and so trump has has said and then he kind of walked that back and said well i'm waiting for the democrats to to introduce something that i can sign either way cities need to be prepared for increased ice activity particularly as we enter into this new uh, into an election year next year. So uh, Chicago has already put directive, the, the new mayor of Chicago has directed the chief of police that they are not to share any more information with ICE. And that is a, that's a significant step. Now, we haven't reached that point in Boston yet. And I think we need to figure out what are the actions that we can take that will not impact public safety and will also serve to protect those who we welcome here and increase public safety because then they won't be fearful of, of reporting crimes to police as either witnesses or victims. And so I think there's more that we can do. So my very long-winded answer is I, I think Boston is moving in the right direction, but we still have a lot that we need to do in terms of uh, how we are fully integrating and empowering our immigrant population. In our remaining few minutes, mm -hmm. could we leave the audience with three takeaways? Sure. I think the first one is involvement. It's super important that everyone is involved, not just in the federal elections, but also the state and local elections as well. The policies that we're making at the local level have huge impact on the type of city that we that we want to be. Um, and so in particular, being able to be connected to movements and to organizations that are following municipal elections on social media, I think is a huge opportunity for people to get involved. My second point would be the importance of our commitment to equity in everything that we do. Uh, as we think about the decisions that we're making that are gonna impact the city for years to come, we have to think about how they are being impacted equitably across the board. Just because things are implemented equally doesn't mean that they have equitable results. And so as we think about our policies in housing, as we think about our policies in education, as we think about our policies and our commitment to climate action, we have to think about how those policies are, are being bared out by the people to whom they are directed. And then thirdly, what is happening right now in our country is against our values as a nation. Our nation of immigrants, our nation of people who have come here, who have built this country. Having kids die in concentration camps along our border is not the nation that we want to be. Uh, there have been local actions that have been taking place across the city, I would say get involved and national actions as well. And to keep it up, it can't just be one or two news cycles. We cannot have children dying on our borders 
dying in our care and be okay with that. My second point would be the importance of our commitment to equity in everything that we do. Uh, as we think about the decisions that we're making that are gonna impact the city for years to come, we have to think about how they are being impacted equitably across the board. Just because things are implemented equally doesn't mean that they have equitable results. And so as we think about our policies in housing, as we think about our policies in education, as we think about our policies and our commitment to climate action. We have to think about how those policies are, are being bared out by the people to whom they are directed. You've been listening to Campus on the Common. We spoke with Alejandra Sankian, a candidate for Boston City Councilor at Large. I'm your host, Mark Brody. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College School of Communications. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.